Are we doing okay still? Hey, that, that right now media thing is going to be very cool. I just want to say two things. One is that there is no cost to you whatsoever. North Point's picking up the tab on that because we feel like it's going to be such an awesome opportunity. We just we feel strongly about that. The other thing is if you're a life group leader in here, you already got that. Our life group leaders got to explore that last week a little bit. They got kind of the preview on it. And so uh, that's just kind of a cool little piece there. So we're looking forward to rolling that out. If you have any trouble with that whatsoever, let me know. And we'll, uh, I don't know how I'll fix it because it's technology and I stink at that, but we'll fix it. So just let me know know if, if you have problems with that. Today we want to talk, we're, in a, we're in the, right in the beginning, we're week two of a new series that we're calling Better Together, right? Brand new series. And, and I said last week that we're really going to try and convince us of something over these four weeks that we're in this together. And that something being that life is better together. That somehow, for some reason, God created life to be done in the context of healthy, authentic, Christ-centered relationships. And last week, we kind of we joked a little bit. We talked about extroverts and introverts and large social tanks and small social tanks. And, and we, uh, uh, we kind of joked about that a bit. And um, uh, I saw on Facebook kind of an interesting uh, phenomena this week. A, a number of you um, posted some stuff on there because we gave out some Legos last week also. And it was interesting to me because I saw enough people, uh, and since it's Facebook, it's public knowledge, so we're using it on Sunday. I'm just kidding. I asked permission. But uh, one of our couples here at North Point uh, posted this picture that you see right behind me. Uh, And I can tell you who they are. Buzz Buzz Barr, Buzz and Kelly. You've heard Buzz speak up here before. And one person in that couple picked one of those Legos, and the other person picked the other Lego. And I'll let you just imagine or decide who picked which Lego. But I just found that fascinating that a married couple would have such a disparity or a difference in the Legos that they picked up. Because we said last week, we said that, that we're going to use this imagery of the Lego piece because Legos are so successful as a company because they're, they're all designed to do the same thing, right? They're just designed to do one thing, really, to connect. And last week we said people are the same. Like we were designed by God to connect. And like Legos, we connect at the top. To God and at the bottom to other people. And so this image is going to keep coming back and, and there's some extra Legos floating around. If you didn't get one, you want to grab one this morning. But I found this picture interesting just because some people have larger capacities to connect with more and some people have smaller capacities and neither of that matters a ton because at the end of the day, we're all created to connect. And so we talked about that last week, and last week we looked at right at the very beginning, the creation of Adam and Eve and how God created them for relationship. It was the only part of creation that God said, it's not good yet. And and so man alone, not a good situation, and he created woman, and then he said, this is very good. And so we said right from the very beginning, it was God's intention that people would do life together. And and then we said, you know, not only Adam and Eve, but we could go back before that and, and look at how God chose to exist. He existed in relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit before anything else was created. And I kind of said that, you know, if God felt the need, if God decided to, do life in the context of relationship. Like, who am I to decide that I don't need that? Right? So that's where we started last week, trying to convince us of something, whether we're an extrovert or an introvert, that God designed life to be done together and ultimately life is better together. We could do life like this guy over here all alone or this guy all over, here, over here all alone. It's a choice we can make, but it's not the way that God intended life to be. And we said North Point is, is passionate about helping all people move to a life fully devoted to Christ. And we think that happens best 
in the context of healthy, authentic, Christ-centered relationships. So that's where we are. If you missed last week, there you go. We boiled down 30 minutes into four. That's pretty good, right? But we want to jump into uh, sort of the next season or the next era or the next saga uh, of this story. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 12 today. Um, those verses aren't going to pop up on the screen, so hopefully you brought a Bible. If you didn't, that's okay. There's Bibles in the pew back in front of you. I think it's on page eight or nine, Genesis chapter 12. If you have an electronic device, version is working, our internet's working, so you can certainly log on to that. But I want you to see something today, because we're going to move from, from God's original creation, his original intent right from the beginning, sort of to the next scene. But before we jump into that, I, I wanted to share uh, uh, this experience with you that I had a few years ago that for me brought this concept home, this concept of life being better together. So I want to show you the video, and then I'll tell you the epiphany I had um, in the midst of this event. Thank you for getting this, and thanks, uh, Heidi, for putting on the banquet, so it's cool. Right on. Let's see up there. Have fun, all right? In America, too, she's a good girl. Crazy about elves, loves horses, and her boyfriend too. And it's a long day, living in Reseda, there's a freeway, running through the yard, and I'm a bad boy, cause I don't even I'm a bad boy for breaking her heart.
Close up, buddy. That was awesome. Yeah, you will do it again? That was awesome. All right, on, dude. Hey, Come thanks, check man. out Santa Barbara. All right, take care. Thanks, So, okay, so here's the experience I lived. Woo. So here's the experience that I just want to point out because, because a, a student got this for me, won it, and gave it to me. It was real cool, whatever. And so you go to the, um, the, the, the airport, and uh, they do this training of how to fall out of a plane. And anybody, just out of curiosity, anybody been skydiving here? Okay, so there's a handful of nuts. Okay, that's good. Um, and so, uh, whatever, we get onto the airplane, and, um, and I go and I sit down. You saw that. I, you sit on this, like, this pine bench or whatever, and then Brian comes and sits behind me, like right behind me. This was like 12 years ago. I still remember Brian's name. We had a relationship for all of 40 minutes. I don't forget that guy's name, right? Because he sits, he sits right behind me, and he is all up in my space. And then he hooks his stuff onto me, and I'm like, what's going on? He's like, oh, you know, when you jump first, you've got to go tandem. You've got to have someone tied to your back. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. That's, that's horrible. That's stupid. I'm not doing that. I just want to jump out of the plane. I can pull a cord. Just tell me which one it is. I'll hold it. I'll pull it when I jump. This is easy, right? It's not rocket science. I'm pulling a cord. Right? So I'm thinking, I don't want to do this tandem thing. I don't want this guy strapped to my back. And they're like, you don't have an option. I'm like, whatever. And so he's sitting right next to me, right? Right behind me. And he's sucked up real close. And it's really awkward. And so then the plane goes up and up and up and up. And that door opens. And you saw that. And people start <laughs> jumping out. And Brian goes, okay, are you ready? And I'm like, no, I hate you. And so then we get up and he starts, um, I don't know how to, like, like bump walking me to the door. And you saw that in the video and he's right in here. And, and I'm like, seriously, I hate you. And he can't hear me because it's loud and I'm yelling at him and I'm like, you're a jerk. And so he gets me to the edge. Right. And I'm on the edge and he's like, take another step. And I'm like, shut up. And, and so then you saw the end where I look like I'm a gigantic baby in a papoose just hanging there, right? Because he's standing on the edge and he's like, we're going to go on three. And I'm like, I hate you. And he goes, one, two, and he jumps because he's a liar, <laughs> right? <laughs> Here's the epiphany. And I, I tell you the story. There's a point for me at least, because when we jumped, I had this huge moment where Brian, who had been bugging me for that whole ride up because he was so close to me. And as soon as we fell, I grabbed both straps and pulled Brian closer. All of a sudden, I was like, this is better together. I'm all in. Don't let me go. Hang on. Put your arms up. Okay. Pull him tighter. And I just wanted Brian closer, if at all possible. There's something about this story. And I tell you, we laugh and it's kind of funny, but I think there's something incredibly true, at least about that event for me, where for whatever reason, I thought I don't need somebody on me to do this. And then when the moment came, I'm like, oh, Brian, let's be closer. Right. Life is better. Together, And sometimes we live life like that. We, in our culture in particular, as Americans, we, we're very independent, we're very individualistic, and we, we think we can do life by ourselves. And so why in the world would I jump into other relationships that open me up to potential hurt and heartache? And maybe I've experienced that in the past, and you're like, I just don't want to do that anymore. I don't know that I want anybody else strapped that closely to me. And yet here we are this morning trying to talk about and think about and potentially convince us that life is better together. And that's how we jump into Genesis chapter 12. Because we say if God didn't intend us to do life alone, 
then what was his intention? So we get to Genesis chapter 12, and you're going to meet a name by a guy by the name of Abram. Later, God changes his name to Abraham. And some of you maybe know this name. You've read this person before. Some of you, maybe this will be the first time hearing about who this is. But God speaks to a guy named Abraham in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And this is what he says. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the place at Shechem, the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Here's the point I just want us to see in here, is that it's very interesting, because as soon as God calls a person, Abraham, God never intended that call to stay with that person. He intended that to go to people. You catch that? God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Not so that he could be blessed, which he was. Not so that he could enjoy life, which he did. Not so that he could be rich, which he was. But so that Abraham would bless others. And this is how God was going to bless all the peoples of all the world was through this one guy named Abraham. The point. God didn't call a person to himself. He called a people. It's interesting because it tells us that Abram was uh, 75 years old when God talked to him. And I, I, in first service, the, the phrase that came out of my mouth was, that's wicked old. And, and I can't say that because that was horrible. Because there's people who are probably that old here. That's, but, but to think about it, 75 years old, maybe two-thirds of the way through life, maybe coming down to the end. And, and up till that moment, he, you know, Abram had some plans and God had some plans. But it was at that moment towards the end that God calls to Abraham and says, I'm calling a people to me through you. Matter of fact, the way it's going to work is you're going to have like nations of kids. The guy's like 75 years old. It's crazy, right? And God says, I'm not calling a person, Abram. I'm calling a people. Some are going to come from you, from your kids and their kids. And, and, and I'm going to bless all of them by blessing you. The point that we're going to keep running back to this whole morning is God didn't just call a person to himself but he called a people to himself. So, so check it out. The story goes on a little bit. Abraham has a couple of kids um, uh, named uh, Ishmael and, uh, and Isaac. And then Isaac, we kind of follow, has some kids named Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob has some kids. But we want to stop with Jacob for a second and flip over to Genesis chapter 32. So you got Grandpa Abraham, you got Dad Isaac, and God continues to talk to these people, and you've kind of got these family units that are that are happening. And in Genesis chapter 32, we zero in on Jacob in verse uh, 24. And let me just set the story up so you kind of know where we're coming from. But but uh, uh, Abraham had some kids, Isaac. Isaac had a couple kids, Jacob and Esau. And and Esau is supposed to get some good stuff from Dad, this birthright, this blessing, this inheritance. And Jacob lies. He's a total deceiver. He lies. And, and manipulates that situation so he can get the good stuff and then he runs away and, and Esau is ticked off he wants to kill him and Jacob runs and hides and some years go by they get married uh, Jacob has some ki- wife and some kids and Esau has a wife and some kids and those kids have kids and they get more sheep and cattle and they start accumulating and working some years go by 
Some events happen and Jacob's got to come back home. And Jacob's freaked out because he knows Esau's going to be there. And Esau's still holding this grudge. And so Jacob comes up with this plan to try to figure out how to come back home, but like not get beat up by his big brother. You're with me so far? We get to chapter 32, verse 24. It says this, uh, verse 22, let's start up there. And it says, that same night, he, Jacob, arose and took his wives and his servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabok. And he took them and he sent them across to the stream and everything else that he had. So, so Jacob takes all his stuff and his family and kind of puts them over there. So if Esau's going to come in like a killing machine, then they'll be safe and, he'll, and they'll be okay. And he's just going to kind of go meet Esau on his own. In verse 24, it says, and Jacob was left alone. I think there's something really important and powerful about that word alone. And, and I got to be honest, I'm not entirely sure what it is. But there's something, I think, incredibly powerful about this moment when Jacob has taken everybody he knows and his family and everything and put them over there to safety. And he's left alone waiting to meet Esau. It says, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let go of me for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I I will not let go of you unless you bless me. And the man said to him, what's your name? And the man said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. And the sun rose on him as he passed Penuel, limping because of the hip. Interesting moment where, where Jacob is wrestling with what, what he thinks to be a man. And as the time goes on, he says, this isn't a guy. This is maybe an angel or something. And as that time goes on, he's thinking, I think this is even more than that. And the account tells us that he's actually wrestling with God there. And it's interesting because in this moment when Jacob is alone and there's something about that that's powerful, God shows up and wrestles with him. And at the end of that episode, which is a whole sermon in itself, the end of that episode, God changes Jacob's name to a name that we still use today, but not a name of a person. It's a name of a people. Making sense? God says, we're going to call you Israel from now on. God never intended to change Jacob's name just for his name to be changed. And now he's going to be known as Israel, but rather God is calling a people to himself. Check it out. Just three more chapters. Uh, chapter 35. We'll kind of finish this Jacob saga here. Chapter 35, uh, starting in verse nine, because he meets Esau and you can read that story and some stuff happens. And then in, in verse nine, this gets repeated a little bit. It says God appeared to Jacob again. And when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. God is reminding him of this name change. And so he called his name Israel and God said to him, I am God almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham, your grandpa and Isaac, your dad, I'll give to you and I'll also give that land to the offspring after you. And then God went up from him in that place. He'd spoken with him and Jacob set up a pillar in that place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of that place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Here's the point. From those earliest days when God is calling 
He doesn't call a person to him. It's not like God just called all these different individual persons to God that he's going to have these individual relationships with. God is calling this people to him. So there's a name change. There's a blessed to be a blessing. There's this promise of land. And all of that is not just designed for a person, but rather a people. Point is that God didn't just call a person to himself, but rather called a people to himself. You know, it's, it's interesting because these could have been just solo experiences. Like, like even this concept of Jacob wrestling with God alone, it was a solo experience, but God twisting it into becoming a people experience, a nation experience. Because these solo experiences, and I don't want to say that solo experiences are always bad. Sometimes they're really good. We need to get away from the noise. We need to get away from the busy. We need to hear God speak to us. We need to dig into the scriptures and listen to music and just have time between me and God. That's valuable and important. But sometimes it's so easy to turn everything into a solo experience. And God turned what could have been these solo experiences into these group corporate community experiences because God didn't just call a person to himself. He called a people to himself. I was thinking a couple of weeks ago, I was trying to think of like a modern example of this. Like, like what would be a modern thing that we tend to do uh, by ourselves that, and for some reason, I don't even know why, the concept of gardening popped in my head. Some of you guys probably have gardens, right? And gardening can be an incredibly solo experience. Matter of fact, sometimes it's a very refreshing thing. Like you just get out in the yard yourself and you're, I'm not a gardener, so I don't know what to do. Dig in the dirt and do stuff with trees and bushes. I don't know. But, but it's a very therapeutic, very solo experience. And that can be good. I'm not not in that. But it was interesting because as I was thinking of that, I was having conversations with a couple here from North Point who are very much into gardening, but they kind of one day said, you know what, I think, I think we could do this better. Like, I think we could do this better. And so five years ago, they came up with this concept of what they call the community garden, this idea of doing gardening, but doing it together. So I did this little interview with them to let them explain why they did that. And we'll just let you take a look at it. This is a community garden, North Point Community Garden. This yep. is our fifth year of gardening out here. Yep. And on this end, we've got our giveaway stuff that we grow to donate to people in the community who need food. And then we've got people out here growing their own plots. Mm-hmm. And then they food that they harvest from their plots, they take home and eat. We've got plots that run for a half an acre here. Very cool. <laughs> and um, on the top part, we have corn up there and squash and all kinds of things that we also donate to. There's well, you don't have to be part of the church. In fact, that's right. why we have the garden. It's to reach out and get the people in mm-hmm. the community, mm-hmm. the people that have apartments or condos or don't have space for it. Mm-hmm. And those are the people that we're trying to reach. And then... Um, all the other food, of course, we just give to the food bank and other people. Or we set up a table in front of the church and give it away, and it's all cleaned and washed and bagged for yeah. you. And, but it's just the idea of once you come out here and you have your own plot, then yeah. you know that most people are going to go home with so much. And it's just the idea and the friendship and the the relationships that you people have out here. It's just amazing. 
you should ask people, but Amber would be one. <laughs> um, it's just so much fun, and the conversations that you have are just everlasting. They're so cool that, I mean, you don't know the person. You're just meet, meeting them for the first time. You say your name, you say their name, and... And then before you know it, and it's a small community. Somebody knows somebody, and somebody, you know, oh yeah, I know so and so. Yeah, you know, so, you know, it's yeah. just, it's just a fun way of getting to know people. And we talk the whole time we're up here. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Linda Dow, and gardening is better together. We're the dolls, we're the dolls and, and gardening, gardening together is better. Is better. <laughs> All right, so a little shameless plug there for Better Together. This is interesting because as I was talking to Linda and John about this, they just come alive when they talk about the garden. And, and it's true, like you can garden by yourself. We get that. But they're trying to think, is there any better way to do this? And so this community garden, and I, I was uh, talking to them because I was reading on Facebook, somebody who's not part of North Point that was bragging about this cool thing, this weird church. No, I'm just kidding. They didn't say weird. This church is doing over in DeWitt, and it's a garden. And I just think that that's so cool. And so as we talked about it and I listened to, to Linda talk about it and tell the story. So cool, this concept of gardening together and developing relationship through it and using it as a springboard to talk about Jesus, all these cool things. This idea that life was designed to be lived in the context of relationships. So it's so the beginning of this week, I started writing down some questions that I just had flowing through my mind as I was thinking these thoughts. And this is what I wrote down. I'll, just, I'll read them to you said this, why, why do stuff in the context of relationships when it's way more efficient and convenient and easier to do it alone? Why do life together when it opens you up to potential betrayal or judgment, pain or rejection? Why, when you've already been hurt so many times before and seen so many groups blow up, would you be willing to get into another life group? And then I changed the, the subject of those sentences to a different word, and this is what I wrote. Why did God call a people to himself when it had been way more convenient and easier and more efficient to merely call a bunch of persons to himself individually? Why would Jesus choose to do life in the context of relationships, opening himself up to betrayal, judgment, pain, and rejection? Rick's actually going to talk about that next week. Or why would God keep coming back to a relationship with his people when he saw it blow up so many times? Maybe, just maybe, this concept of relationships, this concept of better together is God's safety net for us. What's, what's God's safety net? Well, uh, pastor, theologian, author Rick Warren, he describes it like this. He says, God's safety net is a group of other believers. So you don't need a hundred, you only need like five or six. It's a group of other believers who are committed to you. And, and then Rick Warren goes on to tell this story. He says, there was this guy who came to Saddleback Church for seven years. He sat up in the bleachers. He never got involved in anything, never joined a small group. He just came to worship and then left right after the service. One day he had a heart attack and he was in the hospital for two weeks. I was traveling and I didn't even hear about it until I got back. But when he got out of the hospital, he came to church and he said, I'm leaving the church. I said, why? And he responded, because it's unfriendly. Nobody visited me in the hospital. And as he left, I thought, but it's your fault. You never cared for anybody but yourself. You never cared enough to even meet anybody. He never got in a small group, never gave of himself, or never engaged. And so I think the reality is that God called a people to himself, not just a person. And honestly, the question that's left to all of us this morning is, are we part of a people? 
Are we part of more than just me trying to do this, this Christ following life by myself? We're going to finish this morning with communion. It makes a lot of sense to do that today. It's a perfect day for communion. It's interesting because sometimes people think that communion is a very individualistic thing, and and, and partly it is. Certainly there's some reflection that goes on during communion about my own relationship with Jesus. And I can't get a relationship with Jesus because my parents had one or because my spouse has one. That's a very individual thing. I enter into a relationship with Jesus because Jesus and I do that. I can't earn that somehow. I can't get that from someone else. But at the same time, communion, the roots of communion, are incredibly group-oriented, are, are, are incredibly uh, community-celebrative. Because the, the very first concepts of communion comes from a, a, a Jewish ceremony called Passover, which was the nation celebrating how God saved them because they were his people from this death that came. And then God, Jesus, when he came down, took that celebration of Passover and tweaked it some. And he he shared this meal with his guys. We call it the Last Supper, where he tweaked that and said, this celebration that you've been doing is now going to be a celebration of what I'm going to do on the cross. Not just for individuals, but for people. It's interesting because one of his disciples, John, records it in his uh, biography of what Jesus did. And it says that uh, Jesus came to die not just for individuals, but for the world, right? God came to save the world. And so there's this community celebration that goes on in this thing that we call communion. So how we're going to do this this morning is uh, the band's going to teach you a new song. We're just going to sing that a bit. And then after we sing that, uh, we're going to pass out the elements. And I'll just ask if you hold on to them for a minute. Let's come up. I want to read a verse and then we'll take them together and then we'll sing a little more. And that's how we'll finish this morning. this morning and pass out just a cracker and a little juice. I, w- I want to read a verse that's read very often at communion. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is what it says. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, 
the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. It's interesting because often this verse is read and, and, and then something that is said after it like, so before you take communion, you need to think about your sin and you need to confess your sin. And you need to get your sin right with Jesus before you take communion because that's a problem if you don't. And, and I'm all for confession and I believe strongly in getting our sin out and, and believe deeply about getting life right with Jesus. But it's not really what the context of this passage is talking about. See, the context here is there's a church in a place called Corinth. And the problem was that every time they would do communion and they would surround it with a meal, the the wealthy people in that church would get there early and they would eat everything that they could until their bellies were fat and they would drink all they could until they got drunk. And the other Christians in that church that were poor, couldn't get off work so early, had to work a full day and then come. Well, they got there and by the time they got there, there was nothing left for them. Because these completely selfish, self-absorbed, solo experience Christians in Corinth were there first, eating it all and drinking it all. And the author, Paul, here, he hears about it and he's so frustrated. Because communion is like this symbolic thing that we do that reminds us of Jesus in the most selfless act possible. What he does for us. And yet in this small church in Corinth, they were engaging in some of the most selfish things possible. So Paul says, man, what are you guys thinking? And he goes on to give some instructions and explain on how it should work. But the idea in that passage where it talks about eating and drinking judgment on yourself is the idea of of checking our heart. Am I a totally selfish, self-focused, self-absorbed Christian? Or, or am I looking around going, man, who am I connected to? Are there other people that are part of my life and I'm part of their life? And so maybe the, the, the prayer this morning is in a second, we're going to eat this and drink this together. The, the prayer or the ask is, is that maybe we'd look around and, and say, who's part of God's safety net for me? Are they in this room? Are there people that I know that I can count on in this room? Because I put myself out there. I'm trying to figure out how to do life in the context of relationships because life is better together. And if the answer is yes, that's great. And if the answer is no, maybe they go to a different church and that's great. And that's wonderful. They just don't happen to be in this room this morning. But if the answer is no and you're thinking, yeah, I'm I'm not doing it with anybody else. I'm doing life alone. I'm like this guy over here on the wall. And maybe the prayer, as we celebrate communion together, would be, God, who are you going to bring into my life? Help me be open to that. Help me figure out who you want to be my safety net and, and, and who you want me to be part of a safety net for. So as you take that bread, we'll go ahead and eat that together.
And you go ahead and take that juice, and it's red. It's a symbol. It reminds us of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross because of my sins and because of a world that he wanted to call to himself. We'll go ahead and drink that together. We're going to finish this morning by, by singing this song again. And you're going to notice that there's some words that have been changed, and they've been changed intentionally. Words like I and my and I were going to be changed to we because we just want to sing this reality that life was really designed to be done in the context of relationships. At the end of the day, life is better together.